Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, Church of the Valley. So excited to be with you as we start this new series. We get to begin this series that was created with you, the COVer, if you will, in mind. Church, we want to go back, back to the basics of why and what we as a church are all about. Every week, as we would gather in person or as we now gather separately, we want to open God's word and talk about what he has to say and point you to Jesus. And generally, when we do a series, we are taking a different book of the Bible, which we've done for a few years now, and walk through these books of the Bible. We as a church focus on things that I don't think sound that revolutionary. In fact, most Every church that claims to be a Christian church would probably have some type of faith statement or terminology on their website that would attest to these similar words, that we are about Jesus, his gospel, growing to look more like him and making known that he is the Christ. None of that actually sounds that special. But what I think makes our community unique is the fact that we refuse to try to get past any of that. So the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes the filter in which we see the world rather than just this canned message that we share at the end of a sermon with the expectation that you're going to enter into the kingdom of God through coming down an aisle or raising your hand. Not only is the gospel the good news of Jesus being the filter, but it becomes the target in which we hope to see people embrace as the target of their lives as they live this life for Jesus Christ. Now, it comes in four different points that we're going to talk about today. It comes in the form of receiving the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, explaining the gospel, and being transformed by the gospel. Another way of looking at this is, uh, so what about the gospel? Well, the gospel is received, which leads to testifying to what we have heard and then explaining it as the filter of everything we know and being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ each day more into the likeness of Christ. So we're going to begin in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It's at the beginning of the book of Mark that's written by a guy named John Mark who was a disciple of Peter as we had just finished the book of 1 Peter. Here's what it says in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So here we are. In my opinion, one of the most gospelicious verses in Scripture. And you may say, Tim, it doesn't say gospel. It doesn't talk about Jesus living and dying and rising again. Tim, where do you see the gospel? Well, gospel means good news. That's literally what it means, which is all of what you just fictitiously asked me is what that specific two verses are about. And the good news of Jesus implies that there is a message that you ought to know. So let's unpack what Mark was writing and what Jesus was and is doing. After John was put in prison, again, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. After John was put in prison, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, Jesus's cousin, was arrested by King Herod. And I'm going to save you the drama of that exchange. But if you want to see what happened, go to Luke chapter 14 and read it for yourself. But many commentators note that Mark gives this small footnote about John the Baptist going to prison 
very, very quickly. Why? To point out that this narrative is now solely about Jesus. It's no longer about the messenger who is going to go ahead first. It is now about Jesus. So Jesus now is coming into Galilee. He's leaving his hometown of Nazareth and entering in to fulfill the office of news carrier, of evangelist, to bring good news, and he does just that. Jesus not only proclaims the good news of God, he is the good news of God. When we installed Pastor Mike right here uh, back on September 9th, 2018, (laughs) yeah, it's been two years already that Mike's been on staff, Dr. Jeff Louie came and preached that Sunday. And one thing that I took away that has even become a quote that we use on our very website is how he defined the gospel. Here's what he said. The gospel in a broad sense is everything Christ is, taught, did, and accomplished, both historically and theologically. Often we define the gospel as, I don't want to say just, but kind of just what Paul communicates to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You guys know this passage, verses 1 through 4. He says, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you which you've received and which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Here's what we tend to quote. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And as far as sharing a message of news, The life, the death, the resurrection, the exaltation of Jesus Christ is part of the message of the gospel that ought to be shared. But it is not all that we communicate, or we do not treat it like this canned message that people just have to agree to more like a salesman than an evangelist. So the message of the gospel being received is one that is not evidenced by your walking down an aisle or raising a hand or giving a certain amount of money or being extra moral. Receiving the gospel isn't an outward expression, but it is an inward change of heart. And that inward change of heart is more obvious than you think, but only if you're looking for it. We as a faith community tend to exalt and celebrate the outward expressions while ignoring the inward change. The gospel in and of itself is either received as the most important and glorious message of God that could ever be shared with his creation, or it is seen as the dumbest and most offensive religious propaganda that has ever been communicated. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul's speaking to the church in Corinth in this letter. In verses 14 through 16, he says it this way, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphant processional procession and uses us to spread the aroma of knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death to the other, an aroma that brings life. The gospel message is so polarizing that people either have their eternity hijacked and changed or their heart is hardened by the truth of God. Receiving it obviously changes your eternal destiny, but let's talk about the latter for a moment. Why does hardening of heart take place when you hear the gospel but don't receive it or obey it? 
The simple answer is the importance and the magnitude of the gospel always creates some type of reaction and response. The gospel can change your entire life and eternity for God's glory, or it can build resentment towards God through disobedience or rejecting it, which includes ignoring the truth of the gospel. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he starts to speak in parables, and here's what it says, starting in verse 2. He taught them many things by parables. In his teaching, he said, listen, a farmer went out to sow a seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Many treat this parable like it's all about the seed, or maybe it's all about the sower, but I'd contend it's all about the soil. See, Jesus will speak about four different landing spots for the seed that land, or we could call them soils, that he is paralleling, if you will, with souls and how they receive the gospel. The first one is a huge amount of the population that's around. They may hear it, but simply ignore it, it being the gospel. Think about how often we, in our vernacular, in the way that we speak as, I guess, Americans, how often we say things like, well, he had a come-to-Jesus moment, or that is gospel, meaning that something is absolute truth, even though we are not referring to the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection. The word, the world, ignores the power of the message of the gospel more than it overtly rejects it. But in essence, it does the exact same thing while experiencing the exact same thing, which is hardness of heart. The problem with hardness of heart is that like cement, once it is hardened, it is very difficult difficult to be moldable again. Years ago, I, I probably have used this analogy if you've been at the church, but I haven't shared it in quite some time, but I would use this analogy regarding hardness of heart. So I want you real quick, wherever you're sitting, wherever you are listening to the sermon, I want you to imagine that you are by a rushing river. Imagine Colorado or someplace like that where there is just a great rushing river that is nearby, and you're sitting by it. And then I want you to picture the trees that are near it, and I want you to imagine a tree that's very close to this river as the water rushes by. Now imagine on that tree that as the wind is blowing, you start to hear the leaves move and everything, and it's very tranquil, it's very nice. But then one of those branches on that tree as the wind is blowing breaks off of the tree and falls in the river and starts to go down the river. Now I want your focal point to be on that branch as that branch is going down the river with the water. It is going um, through in different areas of this river. But imagine as that branch is on top, floating on top, as the branch moves, that branch is going to stay somewhat moist. I know that's everyone's favorite word. It's going to stay somewhat wet and it's going to continue to be moldable. But then I want you to imagine that same tree branch all of a sudden runs into a dam or a barge, and now it's stuck in some stagnant water where that water isn't moving at all. What's going to happen to that tree branch that's on top of the water that isn't having any water move in and through it? Well, that tree branch is going to start to get brittle. That tree branch is going to start to get a little bit harder. It's no longer moldable. In fact, it's becoming flaky. And similar to our hearts, when we hear the truth of God and his word and we put it into practice because it is framed by the gospel of reconciliation between a sinner and a savior, as we respond in love by obedience to him, 
our heart continues to stay moldable and we grow. But once we ignore, once we're in stagnant water, once we stop moving, our heart becomes more and more hardened to God's truth, to his commands, to his word, and to the reconciliation plan of the gospel. Now, some think that they have received the word, and what happens is, for a very short time, they get so excited. Picture this. I know you've probably met people like this. They get so excited. And what I have seen, what I have experienced, unfortunately, is not just because they're excited, but remember, just a short time, that a lot of these people are going through what I would call the placebo Christian effect. And it often does more damage than we realize. Because people tend to think that they have, to quote uh, Spencer last week, they have tasted the Lord and what they think is that he wasn't good. But in reality, they tasted a cheap rip-off version of what Christianity is all about. Continuing in Mark 4, Jesus continues, and in verse 5 he says, Some fell, being the seed, on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up and the plants were scorched, they withered because they had no roots. We've all known someone in our lives, if we've been a part of the Christian church, maybe we've even said at some point that I used to be a Christian, which to be totally honest is impossible. Because what they perceive as Christianity was a cheap, cheap knockoff, uh, 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 knockoff version of a cultural assumption of what being a Christian is, rather than a gift of grace, rather than the removal of a veil, a confession of need, a proclamation of allegiance to Christ in thanksgiving, and an indwelling of God's Spirit inside of us. God doesn't take back this gift so if Jesus gifts us grace and we receive it, if it's real, it continues to be real in the believer's life. Continuing on in Mark 4, verse 7, Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. This soil is the scariest soil, at least to a true believer. Because as a follower of Jesus, we need to constantly check our motivations. And I know there are days and times and moments where as I search my heart, I realize in the moment that what I think I'm doing for the Lord is actually just self-absorbed work that I want for my own glory. And when the difficulties of this life and the trials that are inevitable show themselves, we tend to be exposed for what we are. See, I love the adage, whatever you're full of, when we get bumped, that's what spills out. So trials don't only grow us, they expose us for whose we are. See what I did there? But when the gospel is received, when it has fallen on good soil, when Jesus' grace becomes this beautiful invitation to dying to ourselves and being raised to life with him, the difference is profound. Verse 8, still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and grew. It produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Hallelujah. Listen, the gospel changes you, and it changes things around you as well. Your identity begins to change. Your priorities recalibrate. Your hopes and dreams and target become more Christ-like than self-obsessed. 
all because receiving the message of a sinless Savior, dying on a cross and rising from the dead to invite us into his kingdom changes everything for us eternally and internally, while the evidence starts to spill out externally. So if the gospel is received, next we know that the gospel is proclaimed. Now, this is known as evangelism, and in a few weeks, we will study evangelism in depth. But let me say this about proclamation, the proclamation of the gospel. If the gospel is true, if the gospel actually does what the Word of God says that it does, if it's true, if it changes us and it changes our spiritual destination, how could we not want to shout it from the mountaintops? How could we not want to share with others what we know to be true? How could we not testify to what God has done if what he has done is so radical? In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is speaking to his disciples before he ascends to heaven. And he says, but you will receive power. And some of you just said power because you've heard me preach this before. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is what Christ's witnesses do. They testify. They tell others wherever they are. Why? Because they've tasted and they know that the Lord is good. So Luke writes that down in the book of Acts. But look at Paul's words as he quotes Isaiah in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, he asks this rhetorical question. He says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone proclaiming, preaching to them? And how can anyone proclaim or preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So our proclamation is one that proclaims the excellencies of he who called us out of darkness and has called us into his marvelous light. We read this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful life. I hope there are some people saying amen. See, the church in the past 60 to 70 years has focused, in my opinion, far too much on trying to get people to sign up for Jesus rather than to bow down to Jesus. But we don't only proclaim it as a church. We don't treat the gospel like it's just this canned message that we just want people to hear and then we pat ourselves on the back for saying it out loud. We don't just want to proclaim it. We want to explain it as the news that we want people to not just hear, but we want them to understand it. So the gospel is received, the gospel is proclaimed, and the gospel is explained. Jesus didn't come just with a message of his life and his death and his resurrection, even though he spoke often about the Son of Man dying for the sins of mankind and that the temple would be rebuilt in three days. But Jesus is the message of his life his death, and his resurrection. It, it, the gospel is personified in Jesus. And as we describe the gospel, we do not want people to accept just a set of facts. We want them to receive a supernatural offer of grace and a pardon from their sinful record. 
In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul says it this way to the church in Rome, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Some would respond to this question with, if I were to ask what is the gospel, they might respond with, well, it's the first four books of the New Testament known as the gospels. And that's what the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's what they're known as. They are the Gospels. But unfortunately, often, if that's our direct response, that tends to expose that people don't really understand what the essence of the Gospel is. But I will say this, the Gospel, the good news, the reality that sinners can be reconciled to a perfect God, that message is proclaimed and explained in the pages of this bound book, but not just the four Gospels. From every page, from Genesis to the end of Revelation, it tells of one story of God's plan to redeem people through his son because we need God more than we need to try harder. But why is explaining the gospel so important? (laughs) So many stories I want to say, but because for the world who's hardened to the truth, They misunderstand the gospel as either spiritual mumbo-jumbo, let's see if you use that word or that phrase this week, or a lie from religious leaders attempting to procure their followers' paychecks. That's kind of what the world thinks. The gospel is news. The gospel is a news of an event. The gospel is a news of an event with real people at a real time in history that changes eternities and futures for those who receive it. It is good news, church, of a good God who pardoned bad people all because of his grace. Now, I'm going to ask you to take a breath because that simple explanation I just pointed out for some of you, actually many of you who just heard me say what I just said, you might balk at that. You might resist my explanation that the good news is of a good God who pardoned bad people because of his grace. Why? Because we don't think we're bad people. And the reality is that many cannot receive the gospel because they refuse to agree that anyone is bad from birth, that we don't want God in our own strength, that we are without God's spirit. And when we're without God's spirit, we can do nothing that is holy or righteous. Now, why does the world and maybe even you resist the idea that people are inherently bad without God? Because ever since you and I were learning to walk, we've been told we are good when we do things right. All good boy, all good girl. And much of what we read or are inundated with through social media or other outlets tell us how good we are, either through some type of nationalism or attempting to get us to buy something. Let me tell you what a terrible salesman I am when it comes to Jesus. You and I are not good. We suck. Can I say, I just did. We suck. In fact, without Christ, the Bible says that we are dead. And let me quote Spencer again. Let me reiterate what he said last week. What can you do when you're dead? Nothing. So we need the gospel. We need the person and the work of Jesus Christ to supersede us in the eyes of the Lord because we can do nothing but clothe ourselves with Jesus Christ. Because Christ's sacrifice and his resurrection 
And when we identify with Jesus's work, rather than our own effort, we are coupled with Christ, attached to him, and he with us. How many people love you enough to tell you that you're bad? And not like in a music video, bad means good kind of way. But even after Christ, even after we receive this gospel, there are things that are being done away with to mold us more into the character of Christ. To receive the gospel is known as justification. You have been justified by and before a perfect God. Our conforming into the image of Christ, our Christ-likeness is known as sanctification. We talk a lot about sanctification at Church of the Valley. Because in almost two decades that I've been involved in ministry in some way, I've noticed that if all people do is aim at justification, aim at trying to get people saved, we often see what was talked about in the parable of the soils where someone gets real excited at first, but then walks away because they never really tasted and saw that the real Lord was good. So at COV, we aim, if you will, at sanctification because we believe sanctification is an evidence of justification. And so that leads me to the fourth and final thing about the gospel. See, the gospel transforms. Let me give you all four points one more time. The gospel is received, the gospel is proclaimed, the gospel is explained, and the gospel transforms. When we began at COV, I often would say, we are not satisfied with people just being justified. And what I meant by that was simply, we didn't want people to think that as long as they prayed a prayer or raised a hand or did something that Christian culture would accept as salvation and say, well, we had all these numbers, that we were done with ministering to that person. That's what I don't want us to do. But we know that a call to follow Christ is a call to die and to be raised to life, a new life that doesn't have an end date while we're still breathing. The gospel is transformative in the reality that you become a new person spiritually. This happens in an instant. But practically, it's a lifetime of progressive sanctification. As we talk often, we know our walk with God can take detours. Sometimes we get off the path, we backtrack or forget where we're headed, but through God's word, through his spirit and his love, through his church, we hopefully are progressing more and more towards Christ in a timetable that might not be what we want, but hear me, it's what God allows. The gospel tells me that God is not frustrated with my slowness to grow. And I think some of you need to just hear this. Hear that. The gospel tells me that he is not frustrated with my slowness to grow because he is the one who grows me through circumstances and responses to those circumstances. And as the gospel frames my life, I will, in a timing that God is completely okay with, make choices and decisions that will reflect Christ more and more as I progressively chase after him. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 14, Paul writes to the church in Galatia, and he says, You, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. 
See, the gospel brings freedom to a believer that we no longer have to think that we need to earn anything. The gospel is not about earning. The gospel is about receiving grace, and that requires humility. Hence why we often say that a prideful Christian is an oxymoron. Don't be an oxymoron. But not only are you being humbled as the gospel, uh, by the gospel, that it is all about Christ who comes and does the work and he saves you, but you are also growing in the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 26. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience or forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. I think a lie from the pit of hell is that Christianity is a religion. Like all other religions, that what we need to do is to really try hard at the moral stuff so we can get to God. Listen to me. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship with the Lord God Almighty, Jesus. And we don't attempt to try harder where we just look like, at least on the outside, that we're more loving or joyful or peaceful or patient or kind or good or faithful or gentle or self-controlled. It's not about proving to other people what we are. It's about being transformed daily into the likeness of our Savior, not because we have to, but because we get to as we obey God at his word, not so we inherit salvation, but because he's already saved us. And why wouldn't we want to obey him? I want you to think about that for a second. If the gospel's true, why wouldn't we want to obey him? If he did all the work to bring us to himself and he offers us his son and he offers us his spirit and he offers us an eternity with him, why wouldn't we want to obey him in this life? So, This is what we're about, church. We're about offending those who think they can work their way to God. That's what we're about. With the beautiful reality that God worked his way to us by sending his son. Now, we don't take lightly the gift that we have been given, where the king of kings removed his royal robe He came down from his rightful throne. He became man through a virgin and the Holy Spirit. He grew in stature, obeying his heavenly father perfectly every moment of his earthly life, teaching and training and equipping a bunch of bad news bears type of disciples. He willingly went to a cross, even though there was no deceit found in his mouth or in his life. He hung on that cross And as he hung on that cross, he asked his father in heaven to forgive those who were hurling insults at him. Then he gave up his spirit. He set the captives free in the depths of Hades. He victoriously rose physically from the grave and he conquered death and he he provided forgiveness for our sin. And he showed himself to his disciples and many, many others. He ascended 
to heaven where he waits to return. Please hurry up, Jesus. And he will come back to judge the living and the dead as the rightful king of the kingdom of God. Church, that's what we believe. That's what we know to be true. That's what we plan to preach as long as we have breath in our lungs. There is no message that is no, more important. There is no news that is better. There is no point that should be emphasized more. Jesus did for you what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus is the point. Jesus died and rose again. Jesus loved you when you were at your worst. Jesus is alive. Praise be to God of heaven and of earth. A few months ago, <clears throat> in a Zoom call I was having with a, with a few young men in our church. We were talking about faithfulness and that faithfulness really seems to be the economy that the Lord gives us when it comes to following him. And, and the truth is that I hope as a pastor and an elder of this church that we would be faithful to lift up Jesus in all that we do. We would be faithful to not just treat the gospel like it's the end of our sermon, but it is how we read the Bible with the gospel in mind. And someone asked me when I knew we were being faithful of that calling as a community. And the truth is, it's a reality that every single day we can get off course. But I'll say this, it was when I got a text from uh, the Hacopians now, but Zorik and Joyce, I got a text from Joyce while they were going to Sacramento. This was the first time that Joyce was going to meet Zorik's family out in Sacramento. Uh, they, she hadn't met them yet. They had just started dating and, and I knew there was something there, but she had texted me and she said, hey, we're out in Sacramento. We're not gonna be at church this weekend. Uh, sorry to miss you, but we went to a church service and it was a large church and, and they did a lot of stuff well, music and they had a dynamic speaker and there were thousands of people there. And she said, but you know what? They didn't, they didn't talk about the gospel. They didn't preach the gospel. There was no mention of sin. There was no mention of redemption. There was no mention of resurrection, nothing. And then she texts me, I just want to thank you and COV. Because I think that if God hadn't led me specifically to this community, I never would have even noticed in the church service that it lacked the message of the gospel. Now, I don't know how you hear that, but what I hear is that God has granted us this faithfulness to be about his gospel, that we don't just share it at the end of a service and tell you in a nice Southern drawl, give your life to Jesus. Listen, you don't give your life to Jesus. Jesus saves your life and he makes old things new. Crap, I'm going to cry like Mike. He makes dead things alive. And I want, I want to not only preach that, the message, that message of the gospel until I can't talk anymore, but I want to be a part of a church. I want my family to be a part of a church that doesn't shy away from the fact that the gospel is offensive because you and I can't do anything in our own power to be saved, but God in his power took on flesh, but God 
took on in his power, died on the cross, but God rose from the dead, but God ascended to heaven and he gifted us his spirit and we are patiently and expectantly waiting for his return. Okay, last story. I've gone longer than I want. Years ago, when Aaron was pregnant with our third child, Evie, Evangeline, who is now nine, some friends and I decided to put on this elementary school reunion. See, I grew up in a town called Glendale. Some of you guys know, not Glendale, Arizona, where the Cardinals play, or uh, close to Arizona State, but no, Glendale, California. And uh, before I moved to Santa Clara when I was 13, and so I left in the middle of junior high, that's middle school for most of you. And, uh, and what happened was we were on Facebook, some of you still use it, and there was a picture of us from sixth grade, which was elementary school back in the day for us, and there were a bunch of us on it, and we, a bunch of people got tagged. And over like 20 to 30 minutes, we had like 200 comments just talking about that picture and talking about old times. And I, I was dumb and I mentioned, uh, I said the point of, hey, uh, anyone thinking reunion? And then I ended up having to plan it. But here's what ended up happening. I drove down to Glendale with my wife. We had family down, we still have family down there, but we uh, went to this place to go have brunch with a bunch of people. And we had brunch and we talked about old times and everything, but we had planned an entire Saturday to just spend it together. And so we had brunch, and then my wife ended up leaving, and I ended up hanging with a group of six to seven friends that I spent a lot of time in elementary and middle school with before I moved up here. And we went to a, 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 the Glendale Galleria, and then we ended up at a restaurant. We had drinks and appetizers and just spent some time together and reminisced. But then that night was supposed to be the actual reunion where we, instead of uh, 15 people, we were going to have like 50 to 60 people show up. And we rented a room in a, in a restaurant, and we decided to go there. Now, uh, growing up in L.A., uh, life's a little bit different. You might run into Mark Zuckerberg wearing his hoodie here, but you would often see celebrities while you live down there. And one of the girls that I went to elementary and middle school with ended up uh, becoming an actress, and she was in a few different commercials. If I showed a picture of her face, you might even recognize her, but I didn't ask her if I could do this, uh, share the story. But uh, she was... She was dating a somewhat well-known celebrity, not so well-known at the time, but he had been in a couple of small shows like Firefly and Castle, and she was dating him, and my wife wasn't with us when she told me this, but she had told me that he was going to end up coming to the reunion as her date, and I was so excited because I, my wife is such a huge fan. His name's Nathan Fillion. And she is such a huge fan. We still are a huge fan of this guy. And so he ends up coming to the restaurant where we are. And, and I got to surprise my wife by introducing her to, to Alicia's date, Nathan. And it was awesome. We had a great time. And he and I ended up talking. And he, I, uh, side thing, he literally bought drinks for everybody. Like he was just one of the nicest guys. And he probably still is. So he and I were at the bar and we were grabbing some drinks for some people and having a conversation. And he asked me what I did and I was like, I'm an accountant. No, I, I didn't say that. I, I said that I was a pastor and I was in ministry. <laughs> and he seemed actually more intrigued than the average person who generally spiritually ducks when they find out that I'm a pastor and they're afraid that I'm going to try to force, force Jesus into their hearts. So he kept asking questions. And so eventually I just laid out the gospel for him. 
I explain that the gospel isn't just a made-up story to attempt to gather members into a church, but that it is validated, cemented, and hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus either rose from the dead or he didn't. And I shared about my past atheism and the anger towards God that I had because my mom died when I was eight. I told him how someone challenged me with what Christianity was founded on and that I eventually would read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And I thought, if I'm going to make up a religion, I'm not going to tell people how to disprove that religion in the actual text. And so over a year or so of study, I came to the conclusion, first mentally and then emotionally, that Jesus actually resurrected from the dead and that this linchpin of hope fits the entire Bible together. Without it, we have no hope, as Paul says later on in 1 Corinthians 15. But with the resurrection, we have a proven and genuine faith that is worth more than anything in this life can ever offer us. Nathan looked at me, and he really not only listened, but I still remember his response. Here's roughly what he said. Well, okay, what I'd like to say is that he looked at me with tears in his eyes and asked, as the crowd did in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, how can I be saved? And we walked outside, and there was a fountain on Brand Avenue, and I grabbed him and jumped in, and I dunked him in the water, and as I pulled him out, the, the heavens opened, and all of a sudden, Nathan started being in really cheesy Christian movies. That's not what happened. At least not yet. <laughs> but you know what? I got to share with a guy who wasn't just an actor that we liked and respected. I didn't get to just share the gospel with someone who was dating a friend of mine. I got to share the gospel with a sinner Who needs grace? But here's what he said to me. He said, Tim, I've never really been very religious, but I've gone to different Catholic and Christian churches from time to time, generally on holidays with family, and I have never heard the message that you just told me. Thank you. Now, again, from what I can tell, that message hasn't taken root. He didn't start jumping for joy. He didn't start to follow Jesus, at least not yet. But I got to share the gospel with this person who I respected and I liked, and I was a little in awe of at first, but I realized he's just another sinner who needs grace. And I really appreciated that he told me that he had never heard that message before. Church of the Valley, we want to be a community of people that point people to the hope that we have in Jesus, no matter what. If there is a pandemic, if there is smoke in the air, If you have to do it over Zoom or YouTube or Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook or TikTok, we are witnesses of God making dead things alive, turning the prideful into the humble, making old things new. And God does all of this through his power, not ours, for the glory of his name, not ours. So we would continue to make the main thing the main thing. It's all about Jesus. Church of the Valley, you and I, can know Jesus because he is available. He has offered to every person, he's offered to every person who any faith, that if they have any faith, that they could repent of their sin, that they could receive his grace and they could follow him.
May we never forget the heart and soul of the gospel in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's my sermon. I want to point you to what we point you to often when we do announcements or at the beginning of the the playlist or even at the end of the sermon. If you want to give of your offering, you don't have to. But if you feel led to do so, we'd encourage you to do that by mailing a check to the church or by going online at covalley.com forward slash give or giving, and you can use a PayPal account. You can give that way. I want to encourage you to be on the Zoom call at 1130 today. It is a sweet opportunity for us as a community to see each other and hear what God's teaching us through this playlist. And I just want you to know that we as elders and staff and other leaders, we are talking and praying consistently about how are we going to get back in person safely so we can enjoy worshiping together. And we trust that the Lord's going to move the way he chooses to move, and he's growing us in the meantime. Love you guys. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. and I thank you for your gospel. And God, I pray that men, women, and children heard this message today or whenever they listened to it, and that their hearts would be changed and fall deeper in love with you. God, I pray that any offering that's given, you would use for your glory and more of the gospel would be proclaimed and disciples would be made because of your work through the generosity of your people. God, would you use Church of the Valley for the glory of your name, not just today, but until you come back. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.